Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. In the collective story that is our family, there are certain items that remain valuable. And they're valuable because they weave together our tribal history. Well, for my clan, it was all about a vase. You see, when my grandparents escaped Cuba, all they took with them was a vase. That vase adorned their living room as they found asylum in Worcester, Massachusetts. And when my mother got married, that vase was her wedding gift. Now, you've got to understand, this vase withstood a lot. It survived through a civil war. It lived even amidst these treacherous treks. But the vase couldn't survive a seven-year-old boy. One morning, I was playing in the living room. I think I was pretending to be a samurai and I swung an umbrella and I hit the vase. I was terrified when I saw it fall on the ground, shatter into a thousand pieces. And with the innocence that characterizes a seven-year-old, I thought, I can fix this. If I only get enough glue together, I'm gonna be able to put my family's history back. Well, it didn't take long for me to realize that it was going to be impossible. And so I decided that I was going now to brace myself for the conversation that was to follow. And when my mother found the vase, she called me. She said, you and I need to talk. Now, for those of you that grew in my generation, you knew that talking was almost always accompanied with some sort of punishment. And so before I went into the room, I knew that the best way to escape the punishment was to put a couple extra sets of pants on. And I came into the room, braced again. I looked at my mother. There were a few tears there. She quickly wiped them off, looked back at me, and said, son, do you know what this means? Well, of course, I knew I had shattered my family's history. That heirloom that defined our identity was now broken. I said, Mom, am I still your son? And she looked at me and she said, you are son. Now let's put the vase together. We spent the whole afternoon gluing that vase together, putting our story back together adding a modicum of grace to my family's history. And when we were done, that vase didn't look the same. It was jagged, broken. There were pieces missing, but it was still beautiful. I recently realized 
that that day I learned what grace truly means, particularly grace that confronts sin. You see, you and I typically define ourselves by our brokenness, and we serve a graceful God who looks at us and say, I know you, and says, I know your life is broken. Now let's put the vase back together. And so we do. We lovingly spend some time with Jesus, gluing the pieces of our life back together. And when it's done, it might be jagged. Some things might be missing, but it's still beautiful. Because grace ultimately doesn't look at what is, it views what could be. And that, that is grace for me. Grace. I have to think that it is probably, if not the most, then one of the most common church words of all. In fact, I dare to say that if you were to keep track in this service or any church service to which you go, that sooner or later in every single service you will hear the word grace. Might be in the welcome, might be in the prayer, might be in the scripture reading, might be in the sermon, but somewhere along the way you will hear the word grace. One of the most commonly used words of all. Now, whether or not we understand fully what it means may be another matter. I went to my online dictionary this week and typed in the word grace and was surprised to see that there were 22 different entries trying to capture the meaning of grace. It means a lot of different things. Grace is what you say before a meal. Grace is a quality a woman has. She has grace. Grace might des describe some kind of artistic, poetic beauty. It might be the ice skater or the ballerina. Grace is a title, your grace, a duke or a duchess or a senior pastor. <laughs> grace is many different things. Grace might even describe something negative, as in, when he messed up, he fell from grace. There are a lot of different meanings, although I think that intuitively we tend to understand what it is. We certainly get it right away when we see the red lights whirling behind us, and we pull over and we say, Officer, I'm so sorry, new car. I didn't realize I was going 88 miles an hour. Can you have grace on me? It might be talking to the teacher. Student comes in and says, I'm so sorry, the, the traffic was really bad today. I'm sorry I'm late yet again. Please have grace on me. It might be to the librarian who says to you, you realize this book is three weeks overdue, don't you? Oh, please, mercy, some grace. It might be in many different contexts or settings. It might even be when you sit down and click on the mouse and you look at the page and you say, oh, good, I can still make the house payment with no penalty. I'm still in the grace period. It has many different meanings, but somehow we intuitively know. We recognize it when we see it and especially when we need it. Grace. 
However, I'm not always certain that we are as eager to dispense it as we are to receive it. Philip Yancey, in his wonderful book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells a story in the first few pages that, in a sense, sets the stage for what comes in the book. It's a heart-wrenching story. It was told to Yancey by a friend of his who works with the down-and-outers in the city of Chicago, downtown Chicago. In that context, she came into contact with a woman who worked as a prostitute. Her life was soiled. Her world was damaged. In fact, she had even drawn her young daughter into the same world as a means to support her own drug habit. Yancey's friend said, when I heard her say this, I knew exactly what I had to do. I had to report it to the authorities. I'm a mandated reporter. But she said, I also wanted to be able to give her something that might give her a hand up, that might provide for her a way out. And so she told Yancey, to this woman, I said, why don't you try going to a church? Immediately. Across the face of this prostitute, there was a look of horrified shock. She said, a church? Why would I go to a church? I already feel terrible about myself. They would just make me feel worse. Yancey says, I have pondered that story. It has haunted me ever since I heard it. Because I got to thinking, these are the very kinds of people. This woman represents the very kinds of groups that flocked to Jesus. And yet now, if what she says is correct, they are being pushed away by the friends of Jesus. Yes, he said, I think the difference all is told in one word. Just one word. And that word is grace. Either the presence of it or the lack of it. And so we come to church and we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We have to ask ourselves some questions about grace. How sweet the sound is the title of this series, for eight Sabbaths together, we will be delving into Scripture, asking about grace and our lives. What difference does it make? How do we receive it? What do we do with it? Do we dispense it? I want to ask you if you would take a challenge with me. There's a text. It's not our text for today, but just a one line from a text in Hebrews chapter 12 that I would like to take as our guiding light, as our north star in this series. It's a text I had read many times on my ways through Hebrews, but somehow it had never jumped out and grabbed me like it did as I was reading and preparing for this series when I encountered it time and time again in different authors and different books. Then it reached out and grabbed me and said, pay attention to this. It's the verse I'd like to have be our North Star. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, just one line, and here's what it says. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. 
This is in a section of the letter to the Hebrews where the author is writing encouragement and warning and guidance about how they are to live their lives, how the theology that is found in the letter is to be played out in their day-to-day experience. Buried right in the middle of that is what I think is a wonderful challenge for you and me over this series. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. It would mean that every person who walks in those doors, every person whom we greet, every life that we touch up against that is in need of something, we make it our studied, settled emphasis to make sure that no one misses the grace of God. Are you up for that? I'm willing to take that challenge in my own life, and I would encourage you to thoughtfully take it in yours. And so we begin today. How sweet the sound. We begin in a little and seldom read letter in the New Testament. It's the letter of Paul to a gentleman by the name of Titus. Paul is writing to Titus. Titus has been left on the island of Crete. Paul has apparently left him there to be, as we did today, an elder in the church at Crete. He is to provide guidance and oversight. He has leadership responsibilities. And in this three-chapter letter, Paul outlines it. He starts in chapter 1 by his duties and responsibilities to the church. Chapter 2, his duties and responsibilities to the family. And then chapter 3, his duties and responsibilities to the larger world around him. It's in that third section that we come across a paragraph that is so rich that John Stott, that William Barclay, two keen scholars say, we don't think there is a more beautiful, packed, meaningful passage in all of Scripture to describe the salvation process by grace. And so we're going there. We're going to read it, Titus 3. But before we read it, I want to tell you there are three basic elements to what the apostle here says to Titus. Element number one, what we were. Element number two, what God does. Element number three, what we do. So we begin with element number one, what we were. So read with me, Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Paul writes and says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. It's a rough condition. He is describing broken, fractured lives. Now what's curious about it? is that Paul says something here that most of us would rather avoid. He says, we all have a past, every one of us. Even those of us who have come to know and love and walk with Jesus in a deep, faithful way have a past. He says it right there. You caught it at one time. We, too, were. All of us. Paul even includes himself. Somebody pointed out to me after first service that Paul could stand before one of those congregations as an apostle of Jesus 
and have somebody sitting in the congregation raise their hands and say to him, you persecuted my parents. Because of you, my grandfather was stoned. Paul is ever cognizant of that fact, never forgets it. We, too, were in that condition. That includes you, that includes me. For some, that was a few days, a few weeks ago. We're new, fresh in our walk with Jesus. For others, a few years ago. For others, it's a lifetime ago. Seems like a totally different person. But the reality is, we all know that situation of broken, fractured lives. It could be a man who is angry. The hostility oozes out of him, infecting any relationship he has. Could be a woman who's very well accomplished, has made it to high administrative levels, makes more money than she could ever use, and yet who lies awake at night asking, isn't there something more? Could be the young person whose parents, in an attempt to keep them busy, gave them a smartphone at a very young age, and now they are hooked. They are addicted. They can't stop. Anybody who tries to relate to them realizes they're lost in cyberspace, playing games, addicted to porn, whatever the case might be. All are snapshots of broken, fractured lives. And that's what Paul says here. We, too, were once in that condition. Now, he's writing this in a specific way to the people to whom Titus ministers. Because he is ministering in a context that was quite godless, a very corrupt situation, in a situation where it would be very tempting for people who had now chosen a better way to get uppity, to say, well, we're better than all these people. We're above all of that. We don't need that. And Paul says to them, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Do not have an attitude because we too were once in the very same boat. Where they are, we once were. What they need, we received. So you be careful the way you handle people who are in that broken, fractured state. We've all been there, needing that heart change. The writer and teacher Max Lucado writes this. Some years ago, he writes, I underwent a heart procedure. My heartbeat had a regularity of a telegraph oper operator sending Morse code. Fast, 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 slow. After several failed attempts to restore a healthy rhythm with medication, my doctor decided I should have a catheter ablation. The plan went like this. A cardiologist would insert two cables in my heart via a blood vessel. One was a camera, the other was an ablation tool. To ablate is to burn. Yes, burn, cauterize, singe, brand. If all went well, the doctor, to use his coinage, would destroy the misbehaving parts of my heart. As I was wheeled into surgery, he asked if I had any final questions. <laughs> Not the best choice of words. So I tried to be witty. You're burning the interior of my heart, right? Correct. 
You intend to kill the misbehaving cells. Yes, that's my plan. Well, as long as you're in there, could you take your little blowtorch to some of my greed, selfishness, superiority, and guilt? He looked at me, then smiled and answered, Sorry, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> Indeed it was, but it's not above God's. He's in the business of changing hearts. Wherever you find yourself in relationship to a broken, fractured life, whether that describes you here today or whether Jesus has saved you and grown you beyond that, Paul's words matter. We were all there at one point in time, and we are never beyond the need of grace. So be kind. Be humble. Others need what you once needed, salvation. That's the first element. The second element in the passage is what God does. Not only what we were, but secondly, what God does. Now, we're going to read the next section, Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. Now, we're going to take a deep breath, and we're going to try to plow straight through it, because in the original language, in the original Greek, chapter, verses 4 to 7, four verses are all one long sentence, one extended sentence. Paul is trying to say everything about the salvation process necessary, all with one sentence. So read it with me. Titus 3, starting with verse 4. Take a breath. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Breathe. <laughs> One long sentence. But notice what it does. It takes us from what we were, from that broken, fractured life. And by the time we're at the end of verse 7, by the time we're at the end of his sentence, it takes us to being heirs of eternal life. That's what God does. Now, we do need to notice that first word in verse 4, that conjunction. This is quite common in Paul. We've noted it before in other passages. Here it is very important. That first word in verse 4 is the conjunction, but. So Paul says, here is what we were, but. He's changing directions. Something about what was is no longer going to be, but. You know what it's like. When you hear that in a sentence, you intuitively know what to pay attention to, especially be attentive to what comes next. Young man, when she says to you, you're such a nice guy, but, and right there, you're all ears because you're stealing yourself for what comes next because it's going to undo everything that was. Or the teacher, 
shaking her head. You did such a good job all quarter long. But, and right there, you know something's coming, something that could undo everything before. Or, or, or maybe just hypothetically, someone tonight could say, my team was headed right to the NFC championship. <laughs> but everything got undone. That's what that little conjunction means. So Paul says, here's what we were, broken, fractured lives, hating, hating each other, disobedient, all of that, but, and now he's got our attention. Now we're all ears because he's going to undo that because something happens. What is it that happens? A God of grace happens. That's what happens. He describes it there in theological language. There's great depth there. Commentaries go on for paragraphs and sometimes pages just unpacking what's in those four verses. That's what God does. I love the way Max Lucado puts it. It's just one line. But listen to the richness of this line. He says, God answers the mess of your life with one word, grace. That's verses 4 to 7. It's God's answer to the mess of your life, the mess of my life, to the mess of any of those broken, fractured lives that are yet outside of Christ. He answers with one word, grace. You will not have to receive what you certainly deserve. Instead, you will receive what you would never deserve. The grace of God. It's really quite overwhelming. Overwhelming to consider. And it's not as though it's in short supply. Lucado in another place says, It's like bringing your teacup to the Mediterranean. This is my need. This is his supply. One word, grace. I was reading this week, read a story a bit dated, but it caught me. Story about a company in Chicago. I don't know if it's still around. It was called the Reuben Donnelly Company. At least at that time, a few years, a few decades ago, was the largest magazine publisher in the United States. Published all kinds of magazines, had a large clientele. Well, one day, apparently, at the Reuben Donnelly Company, one of the machines malfunctioned. Something went wrong. It was, it was the machine that was sending out the notices of expired subscriptions. Because something went wrong, because it malfunctioned, a rancher in Powder Bluff, Colorado, received a notice that his subscription had expired to National Geographic. And then he received another notice and another. He received 9,734 notices. Your subscription has expired. He was overwhelmed, inundated with notices until he finally drove in 10 miles to the post office, wrote a check and a note, stuck it in an envelope and mailed it. And the note he wrote simply said, I give up, send me the magazine. 
Enough already. In a very real way, that's the grace of God. Wave upon wave upon wave that continues to crash into your life, to course over you. It is here. It is free. It is available. I will not stop, he says. So much so that this same writer, the Apostle Paul, will in another place in Romans, reflecting on the magnificent grandeur of God's grace and love, he will say, I am persuaded. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither principalities nor powers, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wave upon wave. In fact, a preacher from yesteryear, preacher from yesteryear talking to preachers, to other preachers, said this to them, until people are accusing you of playing fast and loose with the grace of God, you're not really preaching the grace of God. Because when you are truly preaching the grace of God, it makes people angry. You are playing fast and loose with it. How can you do this? That means anybody can walk in. Anybody gets in. Preacher said, until they're accusing you of that, you haven't begun to truly preach it. It has echoes in it of a Galilean rabbi. A rabbi about whom they said, what is this? Who let all these people in? What's wrong with him? He eats and drinks with sinners. Didn't his mother teach him? You are who you hang out with. Didn't she tell him if you lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas? What are you doing? And they accused him of playing fast and loose with the grace of God. That grace that just keeps coming. And so Paul says to his friend Titus and to those others who are part of that Church in Crete. There's a reality about what we once were. But there's also the truth of what God has done, is doing, and will continue to do. And then there's a third element. Not just what we were, not just what God does, but thirdly, what we do. In other words, how are we to respond to this? To the reality of this grace. Titus 3, verse 8 says, This is a trustworthy saying. It's as though Paul thinks there may be some who may doubt what I'm saying here, so let me just underline it. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. In other words, if, if you are worried that Jesus was too grace-filled, that he didn't hold a high enough standard, think again. Sit down this afternoon and read Matthew chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And by the time you're done with that, you'll be saying he had a standard that was inestimably high. 
But there was something about his person that was inestimably gracious. So Paul now says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stress these things, stress the reality of salvation and of God's grace. Stress them. Why? So that the people who hear them will do good. That they will grow. That they will mature that they will be transformed by the Spirit of God more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And there's one other specific way, unique in a sense, to Titus. In Titus, Paul is very concerned about the witness of the outside people of the church. He's saying there are all kinds of people out there in your community, and they are forming opinions about who you are based on how you respond to them. So those of you who have been saved by Jesus, who have entered a relationship with him, please live the kinds of lives that will be appealing and winsome to them, that are reflections of grace toward them. In another place, he will write it as being a sweet-smelling aroma, your life. That Paul is calling them to. I want them to be so deeply grounded in the grace of God that they will then give grace to others because freely you have received, freely give. We've not always done a good job with that. Matt Chandler underlines that. Matt Chandler, a pastor, writer, tells him an experience he had, a group of them, small group from his church community, were going to a concert that was going to include a presentation by someone that he knew would invite the concert goers to give their lives to Christ. There was a young woman who was a bit on the fringes of Matt's community, church community. Her name was Kim. He invited Kim, come go with us. We're all going. And in his heart, he was praying, God, please open a door that Kim might receive an invitation to come into relationship with Jesus. Her life was troubled, many unwise choices. Please make tonight meaningful, different. They went, and that's when Chandler says, to use his own term, I saw a train wreck. I want to read to you Chandler's words. He writes, the preacher took the stage, and disaster ensued. He gave a lot of statistics to these young people about STDs. There was a lot of, you don't want syphilis, do you? His big illustration was to take out a single red rose. He smelled the rose dramatically, caressed its petals, and talked about how beautiful this rose was and how it had been fresh cut just that day. Then he threw the rose out into the crowd and encouraged everyone to pass it around. As he neared the end of his message, he asked for the rose back. But by now it was broken and drooping and the petals were falling off. He held up this now ugly rose for all to see. And his big finish was this. Now who in the world would want this? His word and his tone were merciless. His essential message, which was supposed to represent Jesus' message to a world of sinners, was this. Hey, don't be 
a dirty rose. Well, it probably should surprise none of us that Kim didn't go forward that evening. And then once they'd returned home, Matt didn't hear from her again for a while. Some weeks later, when he did hear, it wasn't from Kim, but from her mother. Her mother who called to say, please, would you visit Kim? She's been in an accident, quite serious. Would you go to the hospital to see her? I pick up again with Chandler's words. In the middle of our conversation, seemingly out of nowhere, she asked me, do you think I'm a dirty rose? My heart sank inside of me. And I began to explain to her the whole weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is this. Jesus wants the dirty rose. It's his desire to save, redeem, and restore the dirty rose. That's what he came to do. So come as you are. As I thought about that story, I thought about the reality of that Galilean rabbi who went around welcoming one and all. Those who were, to use Paul's term, as we once were. Here's what God will do for you. And then he turns and invites the church. You let your light shine. You welcome them in. You extend to them the grace with which God has saved you. And it seems that Jesus spent his time telling stories about fathers waiting on porches for sons staggering home, saying to women thrown in the dirt, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. It seems like that's how he spent his life, just dispensing liberally the grace of God to any and all who would listen. Paul says, now that's what you do. Those of you who have received his grace, who are growing in him, who have been saved by him, don't forget where you came from. Because where you were, they are. What you needed, they now need. But go out and do good in the world around you. So the question is simple. What does God do with broken, fractured lives? What does God do with people who are lost? What is the answer to that broken condition? Paul says the answer is simple. The answer is this. A God of unlimited Grace.